for our first first podcast. Welcome, Wes. All right, you ready? Should we have a little segment where we try to discuss what the name should be? Yeah, sure. Let's do that. Let's uh, let's just let's just start it with how exactly how this started with me sitting down. All right. And uh, well, but welcome to those listening. Yes. Um, this is you know no lag podcast. We did a few of them about a year ago, and uh, you know we kind of have been retooling things and figuring out what it is that we want to do, finding our voice and that kind of thing. And I think we we struck on something uh, with Steve Moulton here. Hi. And uh, I think I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, we're going to do a movie related podcast, but we're we're trying to figure out what to name it. Yes. So do you have do you have a suggestion, Steve? Well, in honor of the first movie we watched for this thing, I wanted to call it North by Northwest, since your name is Wes. But that leaves you out completely. It kind of does. Unless we change your name to North. Oh, like uh, that baby or that Elijah Wood movie. Sure. Yeah. I feel like Steve has kind of served me well so far. Yeah. Um, what about... I feel like there might already be a podcast called spoiler alert but i feel like since a lot of this podcast is going to be spoiling movies if people have not watched these movies and they dare to listen maybe we could put something in there with spoilers like steve and wes spoil movies or wes and steve we just call the spoiling movies just call the spoilers but i don't you know the thing is that um, does that's got a negative connotation it does uh, and the thing is, I don't want people to think that necessarily we're going to be talking about new movies necessarily. I mean, sometimes, That's a good point. Sometimes we will talk about new movies, but spoilers is sort of a recent, I don't know if I want to say phenomenon, but a, a recent thing. Yeah. You know, spoilers weren't really a thing in the past, or at least we didn't have a name for them in the past. Right. So I think when people think of spoilers, they think of like Game of Thrones. Right. You know? Okay. Uh, we won't be talking about Game of Thrones, I don't think, on this podcast but nah uh, since it's not a movie i mean we won't focus on it certainly <clears throat> well i mean if they ever come out with a game of thrones movie maybe we will oh. but, um, but for the most part uh this is going to be so look maybe we should explain what what the idea behind the podcast is yes so uh there are a much more than a handful of movies that i have not seen me too and yeah and the same goes for steve and we found a remedy for that yes and that's this podcast so we decided what we're going to do is every two weeks we're going to come out with this this podcast and then a lag podcast channel and we're going to talk about two films yes and one of us cannot have seen the films that we're going to discuss prior to prior to the discussion right so if you've seen alfred hitchcock's psycho but i have not we can watch Psycho. Correct. Have you if, seen Psycho? I have, but okay. I was just using that as an example because I'm pretty sure we've both seen Psycho. I was about to add a movie to the bucket just now. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. I've, I've seen Psycho possibly more times than I should have. Yeah. No, it's great. So so we're going we're gonna to watch a couple of movies. Some are old. Some are newer. Um, sometimes we'll talk about things that are out in the theaters. Every once in a while we might go see a movie in the theater. Uh, we might do some film festival stuff. We'll see how that goes. And um, we're gonna we're just going to talk about what we thought of the films um, and the things that we got from the films and whether right. we like them or not. Um, Ooh, so. Steve and Wes, or Wes and Steve, on the classics. 
No. They're not all classics. Yeah, that's true. Are you so, saying Disney's Airborne is not a classic? Yeah, well, spoiler alert. We might be talking about Disney's Airborne. Yeah. Eventually. Not today. Not today. Eventually. And by the way, spoiler alert, we're not going to be saying spoiler <laughs> alert very often because we're just going to assume that if you're listening to this, you're okay with us talking about these films. Uh, so we do have two films that we've watched to start this off, but I do want to point out that um, in the future, at the end of every episode, we're going to go ahead and draw two films out of the Muppet Bucket. That's where we draw our films. And uh, that way you will be able to watch the films prior to our next podcast. And when our next podcast comes out, you can kind of understand exactly what it is that we're talking about. Yes. So you, listener, have a little bit of movie-watching homework to do. Yeah. And that's always fun. Yeah. So we didn't solve the problem of a name. Not yet, but... Maybe you know, by the end of the episode. We yeah, will. as we go on, if something really dawns on you, then boom, just sure, shout it out. Sure. I've got a notepad here. Well, I've got some loose paper sure. and a pen on a magazine. Yeah. So if anything pops up that we need to write down, we can do just that. Yeah. So should we just should we jump into it with our first movie? Actually, why don't I say what the movies are real quick for this right. episode? The movies are North by Northwest. Yes. Steve alluded to that earlier. And Sophie's Choice. Two extremely exciting movies that aren't at all sad and kind of morose. <laughs> well, don't, don't, don't dissuade them from what I'm about to tell them. <laughs> so, uh, um, good movies. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but now is the time, if you have not seen North by Northwest, um, which right. you can watch on... I'm not sure. We watched it on Vudu. We watched it on Vudu because I own it. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's North by Northwest. It it's can, easy to find. You can find it. You can rent it pretty cheap. Um, so you can get it on iTunes. You can get it on Vudu. Yeah, um, it's you, probably on Netflix. Yeah, I'm not 100 percent sure, so I don't want to say it is because it's Touché. a big it's a big classic. Um, the other is Sophie's Choice, and Sophie's Choice is available on Netflix. So, um, and I believe it's available on Amazon Instant as well as of this recording. Most likely. So uh, now's the time to pause, go watch those movies, and come back. We'll be here. Should we do like a countdown? For? One million. No, you mean waiting for them to come 999,099. I, I, I don't think we want to count down the length of... I mean, Sophie's Choice was two and a half hours. So I don't think we want to... That oh. long of a podcast. Okay. All right. So so should we ju- jump into it then, I guess, with our first movie? Well, can I ask you a question? Absolutely. So, why this podcast, why pick me... What is it about us two that makes you think we're right to discuss these things? Um, that's a good question. I um, have kind of an idea. Well, okay. Uh, so I, I know you love movies. I do. You're an actor, so you work in film. And a former published movie critic. Okay. Well, movie reviewer, uh, I'll say. Okay. I didn't know that. Oh, you didn't? I did not know that. Oh, get ready to live. All right. And then I, I work in film. Yes. Uh, so we both have a passion for storytelling. Um, and I think uh, we we both have this sort of addiction to film. Sure. Um, we we try to consume a lot of film. Um, mm-hmm. Your your method is a little different than mine, which I think is kind of cool, kind of complimentary. How, um, I don't how, know that I had a method. Well, I mean, you you will reconsume the Ooh, same film. That's true. right. And you and so you end up retaining a lot of information, whereas I consume a movie and then I'm on to the next thing I've never consumed before. Okay. So I don't retain as much information. So 
in that sense, it's very complimentary because we both sort of come from different schools of the filmmaking. Yeah. You know, we're on different sides of the camera and we consume it a little bit differently. And so we remember different things. So I, that's one of the reasons why I chose you. I also like you. I, I think you're a nice guy and I think I you're like very you personable. Too, Wes. Oh, that's sweet. And that's where my reason plays into it. Because I feel like in our circle of friends, we yeah. are largely re- regarded as pretty knowledgeable movie buffs. Yeah. And then the idea that there are still so many movies, so many, for lack of a better term, great classic movies right. that we have not gotten around to seeing. Yeah. I feel like maybe without this podcast, I don't know if I would have gotten around to see them, seeing them, but I should. And so with this podcast now, we've got this this quest laid out before us. Sure. And, and, and in between the two movies, we'll talk a little bit about our lists that we made. So, Oh, yeah. We looked at the um, AFI Top 100, um, the IMDb Top 100. There's a 250, but I looked at the Top 100. Um, I looked at a few different articles and, and things like that, and so made a list of movies that I shockingly have not seen and um, was kind of surprised that I hadn't seen. I was like, surely I've seen that. No, I've never seen that. It's weird when you feel that, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. So um, this is a way to, to kind of better educate ourselves, um, make us better artists, but also, you know, like – just kind of do something that we love right so yeah that's that i love it that's the answer i love it a lot is that good enough for you steve absolutely it is perfect i mean it was just a question can i plug my old movie reviews i I would love it if you did all right so way back which is weird to say way back in the year 2001 um i was approached by a small east coast magazine called mode Mm mode weekly mm-hmm. and uh the publisher came into a video store i was working in he said i'm looking for somebody who writes movie reviews and i said well i like to write and i love movies and i even work in this video store what can i help you with so he put me on um reviewing i believe i used to do three theatrical releases a week well every it was bi-weekly, so wow. bi-weekly. And then one, uh, we called it B-Movies and Couch Classics. And so my title there was The Movie Junkie. Mm-hmm. And uh, and even while going to college full-time and having several jobs, I would still, because I love movies so much, put myself in the seat in movie theaters three times a week, plus sit through a B-Movie Couch Classic. And then you... If you really feel like digging around on the internet, look up modeweekly.com and you can see some of my insane ramblings about movies, which is why I consider myself a reviewer and not necessarily a critic, because I'm still not sure if I know exactly what I'm talking about, but I have fun doing it. Sure. And everybody's kind of a critic. I mean, like you hear it's that true. a lot and um, everybody has an opinion about film and you know, sometimes it's educated, sometimes it's not. With us, you're probably, you know, when you listen to the podcast, you're probably going to get both educated and uneducated views. I from almost, us. I almost try to come from sort of the uneducated point of view, because as much as I can appreciate really fine film, I feel like you know, Joe Sixpack has every right to his opinion as well. Sure. So I almost try to look at it from a bit more of, of the way, you know, the average guy who's just taking his wife and kids to the movies might think about it. Sure. And I and I generally uh, try to look at movies in a, you know, as a way to, like, sort of better myself as, a, as an artist. So I'm looking at, you know, subtext and shot selection and things and probably not the things that the average moviegoer thinks about. Right. 
Um, so this will be an interesting uh, sort of experiment. In the, I agree. And only one of us wears glasses, except that we both do. Oh, okay. Great. So we've got that in common. So we'll start the episode, or the first first episode <laughs> off with a confusing fact. That's right. not a fact. Well, it's like that old joke. Uh, what's the difference between a cat and a bird? What's that? They both have wings, except for the cat. Okay, fair enough. That's a That joke's wrong all the way around. Let's talk about movies, Wes. All right, let's do it. So the first film, North by Northwest. So, uh, so our first film is an Alfred Hitchcock film. Yes. Uh, it's a film about uh, Roger Thornhill, who is an ad exec caught up in a case of mistaken identity. Namely, he's a government, uh, well, he's not a government agent. No. They think he's a government agent um, on the trail of a group of foreign spies. Right. Led by Mr. Van Dam. Mr. Van Dam, who we initially, uh, Townsend, he thinks his right. name is Townsend. Played by James Mason. So uh, early in the film, Roger is kidnapped mm-hmm. by these men, these these foreign spies. Kidnapped rather quietly, too. Rather quietly, kind of surreptitiously. Yeah, they're just kind of like, out. come with us. And he's like, well, maybe I should. I, I got a kick out of that scene. Yeah, it's, it's a good scene. Um, and they they kidnap him and they almost murder him. Yes, he gets almost murdered. And then beyond that, he gets framed for the murder of a U.S. diplomat. Right. And inside the, the U.N. Inside the U.N. And so he goes on the run, and the story continuously shows him mistaken as this other guy. Yes. Mr. Uh, Kaplan. Mr. Kaplan. Is who everybody thinks he is. And pushes him into the arms of a forward and sultry vixen named Eve, played by Eva Marie Saint. Yeah, she's she's quite something. She that is. That character, I, I didn't know movie characters in that um, era yeah. were ever that forward and blunt yeah. on film. Um, she a, puts it out there. She's a forward lady. Yeah. Eva Marie Saint from On the Waterfront, and I think she even played Clark Kent's mom. She did in Superman Returns. She did, okay. She did in Superman but Returns. But not the Christopher Reeves Superman. I don't think so. Is that correct? I don't think so. I think she was. She would have looked too young maybe then. I don't know. Okay. Because that was, that was the 70s. Right. She 70s and 80s, yeah. So maybe, maybe she wasn't quite Martha Kent age. Yeah. She's still working. I mean, she's like 90, and she's still working her near that age. Hey, if I was Eva Marie Saint, I'd still be working too. You know what I mean? Sure, why not? Yeah. She may be more like 80, 85, somewhere that area. She can be as old as she wants as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Yeah, she was she was great in this movie. Um, so immediately in the film, they sort of attempt to set the pace, which is interesting hmm. because the pace that they try to set is this like very fast pace uh mode they they do what we now know as the walk and talk yes where you know like if you've ever watched the west wing or or any aaron sorkin thing um where the characters are walking and they're like dictating what they have to do or what someone else has to do and that's that's how the movie starts yes and um the whole movie is not that way it's it's kind of interesting it it sort of is like a roller coaster you have these moments that are fast where you've got a lot of fast talking and then you have these sort of ebbs and flows where all of a sudden they're they're having like a long scene in a train car or a long scene in a library or a long scene in an auction house but 
those scenes are also still intense. Um, they right. just have a different kind of intensity than than the standard walk and talk, hustle and bustle. So I thought that was um, that was kind of inter- interesting um, because the the style of film mm-hmm. pacing evolves as the thing goes just Absolutely. as the Roger character evolves. Yes. So for example, like he's he's a liar essentially. Um the guy starts out as a liar um and he sort of ends the film as a liar. Um but the type of liar he is changes. So at yeah. the beginning of the film, he uh he lies to get a taxi cab. That's well, true. He he lies about his assistant. So he lies to get something that he wants. And by the time you get to the end of the film, the character's sort of gone through this roller coaster ride and he lies to save someone's life. Yes. And I thought that was like a just that kind of a clever way to to sort of show character growth. Because on the outside, it it almost doesn't exactly seem like Rod or uh, um, Roger, yes, that's his name. Yes. It doesn't seem like Roger learns that much of a lesson by the end. Okay. Uh, except that he puts himself out there to to save somebody's life. Yeah. Um, but but kind of that last scene of the film in a train car with his lady. Yeah. That sort that of like he's like four oh. second scene. Yeah. He's sort of like the same old Roger. Yeah. But uh, but yeah. I mean, I don't know. What did you? Well, you um, on any of it's this? it's funny that you bring up the liar thing because I hadn't really noticed that. But yeah, it, in the very beginning, he's he's walking with a lady to a taxi and he. Yeah. You know, he yells for the taxi and then just goes to the first one that stops. Somebody else is already trying to get in it. And he says what? Like, oh, sorry, son, I've got a very pregnant woman here and just shuffles her in and steals the cab from the guy. And then I hadn't seen I hadn't I mean, I'd seen it, but I didn't really think of that. Unfortunately, to me, that was just sort of like, oh, well, there's a good trick. To steal somebody's taxi cab, <laughs> but, and, um, and it's not the first taxi, or it, it's the first of many taxi cabs that get stolen in the film. At least two more taxi cabs get stolen oh, sure. from people in the film, which is interesting. Absolutely, but what I picked up more for for his arc was that uh, I mean, he starts the movie as kind of, you know, just a, a well put together, uh, self sufficient, but kind of a mama's boy, you know. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, there was even a pretty early quote where he's like on the phone with his mom and somebody can't hear his mom's side of the conversation. And then when he, he ends it, he literally is just like, that was mother. Like as if that person's supposed to know exactly who his mom is. And, uh, and then I feel like as the movie goes on, he kind of has to become a tougher guy, you know, got to get his suit dirty, got to run from a few attackers and whatnot. And, and, and really, uh, I feel like he, he kind of becomes a full man by the end and not, you know, cause he's what, he's like a Madison Avenue ad executive, right? Yeah. He's not exec. And he kind of, you know, they paint him as this guy who just kind of does whatever his mom tells him as long as he can get drunk in the process. And other than that, just sort of tries to skate through everything. And now, by the end of this movie, he's like, he's a man in full, I guess you could say. It's interesting because it's... I hope, anyway. Sort of hits on some other points that I have that I'll make in a minute. But um, but I, I got a little tweak to that, that okay. how I saw it. Um, I saw him as a very big fish in a small pond at the oh. very beginning. Um, he's very large and commanding in his scenes initially. He's true. He's moving through a crowd. He's in a small elevator. He's in a small taxi cab. Um, but he is this presence, and he's like whipping out this dictation, and he knows what he wants to, to on the card for the gift for his ex-wife. And um, you know, I think he gets humbled by the the personal life the mother for example right. the assistant telling him not to drink too much because he's known to overdrink right um 
and it's like it's like his professional life is he's this big character and then his he's kind of under the thumb of his mother yeah. um, you know like to the point that not just oh i i miss calling her i better send her a telegram yeah to let her know where yeah. i'm at you know like that's someone who's under the thumb of his mother. And when you see him in scenes with his mother later on, you get that feeling a little bit more. And I think it goes to accentuate this sort of big, big presence being made small and humbled again. And I think that that's necessary for this journey that he takes and in becoming a good human being and becoming sort of a man and becoming a hero at the end of the film is you gotta be humble in order for that to work. Yes. I can agree with that. I can absolutely agree with that. Um, what was your next point? Well, my next point is 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 really a long <laughs> kind of overarching thing for the whole film. Okay, but if you want, if you have some things, I I, I don't want to just like no. I've just got a bunch of little notes that I jotted one. down. Well, maybe you can just throw them in, intersperse them when I get to yeah. Some I'm different thinking that will happen. <clears throat> sure. So um, so kind of going with that big fish in a small pond to a minnow in a giant lake kind of a thing. Um, they give us a lot of imagery to show that. So like I said before, he's he's standing next to his assistant. He's a man. Yeah. He's, he's got a presence and he's forceful and he's the boss. Right. Yeah. And even when he goes to meet the other, the other ad execs or whatever at the bar, he's still got this sort of presence. Yeah. So you have him moving through a crowd you have him in an elevator you have him in the back of this taxi cab where it's all small and then when he gets to the location that he's going to be kidnapped from we start getting shots that are the cameras further out and you have this giant hall with these tall arches and all of a sudden he's small in these places and this is the place where he loses power and he gets taken by these people yeah and he gets taken to this house and this house is big they even referred to it as a big the big house it's gigantic yeah i mean it's massive this huge gra- grounds and um and so they bring him to this house and again he's he's powerless and to the point where he's powerless to where he goes unconscious right right so we have him every time he's he becomes powerless in this film he ends up in these giant places and they get bigger and bigger as the film goes. And I thought that was a, a really great technique to show how small this guy had to get to become yeah. so great. Right. To become, to become the guy that saves someone's life. Right. So <clears throat> that's a very good point that I did not pick up on at all. <laughs> I will point out, yeah. you mentioned about being in the back of the taxi cab and everything, you know, small at that point. Those cars are all gigantic. Like, there's right. literally a part where he's in the back of the taxi cab with his, with his, uh, with his captors, and he manages to get his whole body out around in yeah. front of a captor to try to get to the door. Yeah, they're and like I remember, fifty-eight Impalas or something. They're huge. Yeah, well, maybe even earlier than that. Yeah, maybe. What? Uh, but they're just so huge, and I, I remember looking at it and thinking, like, I've never had that much freedom of movement in an automobile before. Those cars were so big, and yeah, that just struck me funny about how. But but he is like withdrawn when he's in those yes. back seats, right? Like he's got two guys sitting next to him with guns in their pockets. Yeah. And he's just, I love uh, when they first approach him and they just smack him on the shoulder and he just kind of stops and looks at the hand and goes, what's that supposed to mean? (laughs) (laughs) And and then they kidnap him and threaten his life. Right. So Roger gets mistaken for this Kaplan 
fella. Yes. And he starts to investigate uh, who this is. And he's gotten away from the bad guys, and he sort of starts to reclaim control with his life. Right. Um, although his mother is tagging along, and she's kind of snide the whole time. Oh, yeah. Bringing him back to Earth. But So they go to where this Kaplan fellow's hotel room is. And they break into the room, mm-hmm. sort of. They get the key to the room. And they go in. And once again, we're given an example of Roger being big. Yes. He's back in control, right? So he, he gets the guy's suit and puts the guy's suit on. And he's too big for the suit. So once again, he's in control. Big man. Right. So he finds out that supposedly this Townsend guy who kidnapped him is going to be giving a speech at the UN. So he's going to go to the UN and confront him. But when he gets to the UN building, he finds that it's not the man that kidnapped him from right. before. It's a completely different guy. It's the real Townsend. The real Townsend. And that this other guy was pretending to be Townsend. Right? Yes. And the real Townsend has literally no idea what's going that on. anybody's impersonating him or anything. Right. And as he thinks he's going to get information from Townsend, he's showing him a photograph to see if Townsend recognizes the man in the photograph. Townsend gets a knife in the back. Uh Uh-huh. And, of course, in old-fashioned stupidity, uh, Roger touches the knife and pulls it out of the guy's back, and he gets framed, gets photographed and framed for this guy's murder. And he loses control again. And what's the next thing we see? We see... Roger, yes, running out of the UN from the top of the UN building, and he's a little tiny ant running right. toward that car. That was a he's lost shot. control, and he's tiny again. Yes, it's really clear what Hitchcock is doing, but he's doing it in such a beautiful way yeah. that you just admire it and you don't stop and think, you don't dwell on it. So that's sort of the power of Hitchcock. That's kind of what he does, you know. Like he he'll turn a shot of a close up of a telephone into a long shot of somebody, you know, coming into a room. Right. Both things are important, and you know, um, and that's just sort of like why he was so great at what right. he did. So absolutely, we find him insignificant again. Yes, you you've got something you want to say. Well, no, just one of my no- feel it. One of my notes uh, from just a moment ago was yeah. when somebody dies in front of you. And they're slumping over in a crowded room with a knife in their back. Don't grab the knife with your bare hands and take it out. You're not going to help them. Just leave it there with your prints not on it. Go about your day. And say, oh my gosh, someone killed this guy. Yeah, for real. Um, that's An a expert knife thrower killed this guy. Helpful tip by Steve Moulton. I try, you know. So, um, then we go from this really large UN shot. Mm-hmm. And we start to slowly get smaller so first we get smaller inside grand central station and people are looking for him right and then we get even smaller onto a train car yes and then so he meets eve eve kendall eve kendall and you can't get any smaller than where they go with him so he feels like he's completely in control. He he meets this girl. They sweet talk each other. She knows who he is. She sweet talks him Ooh, like she, a bag of Skittles Yeah, hiding a bag of Starburst. She tells him where she's staying, which train car she's staying in, implies that she's going to help him hide from the police. Yeah. And then the moment mm-hmm. where we see a big man in a small space. He's locked in her the 
the overhead bed, the mm-hmm. overhead bunk to hide him from the police. I don't think you can get much smaller than that for this guy. Pretty much not. And again, he thinks he's in control and he's got this girl and he thinks he's seducing her as much as she's seducing him. Although we know that she's clearly in control of the seduction. Right. Um, after the train stuff, we, it goes big again. Yes. So again, this roller coaster. So it goes big, it goes small, it goes big, it goes small. He finds the tiny razor. He does find the tiny razor. That's a really good point, actually. That I that I didn't that I didn't note that he finds this tiny razor, and we see him actually shaving at this razor, and it's like, again, a big guy with little things, you know. Yeah. Um, but so he ends up at a literal crossroads. That's true. Out in the middle of nowhere. I believe they said it was somewhere around Indiana, right? Uh, Did she say he had to take a road out to Indiana? Yeah, they I mean, stopped it in might Chicago. be. Yeah. And then he had to catch a bus to a crossroads in Indiana where it's just completely flat and and sandy yellow all around. And it's the biggest location we've seen so far because mm-hmm. it's the most vast. It has a horizon, right? Right. So um, so we've gone from a hallway to a house to the UN to a crossroads. Now we're outside. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about suspense now. All right. Take a take a quick break from this big to little thing. Hitchcock is extremely well known for suspense, but this scene shows why he was the master of misdirection. Roger is told to go out to this crossroads, and he gets dropped off by a bus. Yes, it's a bus stop in the middle of nowhere, which is crazy and awesome at the same time. Um, he's told that he's going to meet the real Kaplan. Yes, at this crossroads. In the middle of nowhere. There's just like a cornfield and just empty fields around him. Yeah. And he's waiting. Yeah. And so you're expecting for Kaplan to show up. Right. Well, we suspect that maybe not Kaplan's going to show up. Yeah, because don't we know the truth about Kaplan? Because we know the truth about Eve at this point. We know that Eve is working with the bad guys. She sends the bad guys a note on the train saying, what do I do with him in the morning? Right. So she tells him to go meet Kaplan... Yeah. In this, in at this crossroads, so we're waiting, but we know that Eve may be double crossing him. So we know to expect something, but we don't know when and how. Yes. But we assume it's this car that's driving right towards him. Yeah, and then that car zooms past. Right, right, and then another vehicle starts coming. Yeah, and that vehicle zooms past, and then another. And then all of a sudden, across the street, out of the cornfield, yeah. comes another car, and a man gets out of the car. And the man slowly walks over to the side of the road, and he's across the street from him. And Roger's like, that's got to be Kaplan, it's right? has got to be my dude. So he goes over there, and it's still not Kaplan. Yeah. Then a bus comes. So you're expecting all these. So he's waiting for all these cars. Right. But it's when he talks to that stranger, before that stranger leaves, that the stranger clues the audience in. Yeah. That there's been misdirection going on this whole time and that we shouldn't be looking for the obvious. We should be looking for the thing that sticks out. Right. And that thing that sticks out is a plane that is crop dusting an empty field. Right. So then we get the maybe one of the most famous attack slash chase sequences in 
film history. It's not Absolutely. much of a chase, exactly, but. Um, but that shot, I can. I've. Yeah, I bet yeah. I've seen that shot on my TV screen once a year since I was born because it's that famous of a shot. Right. It is always referenced. It is always. You see photographs of it. It's, right. It's him running from the plane, and the plane's coming down to buzz him and just chop him up. Chop him up in its propeller. Um, yeah. So. So I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like that's a really clear, if anybody wants to know a good example of misdirection in a classic misdirection in a film, that's the scene to watch. Not only do you get to see this really classic scene that you've seen imagery from, but um, you get the one of the best examples yes. by a master. Um, Agreed. So, we're, so he escapes this big location where he's lost control. He ends up back in a hotel room and confronts Eve back to a smaller location and uh, um, he gets a suit cleaned and then he's going to basically follow Eve to the auction house, which is really the smaller location that I'd like to focus on because this is the scene where he takes control again. Right. Um, So he goes in this auction house, he confronts everybody, he sees that he's pinned down and he creates such a disturbance that... He not only gets picked up by the police and escorted out, mm-hmm. but he makes them aware aware of who he is, which in turn gets the government aware of where he is. Right. And sort of gets him rescued and clued into all the stuff about Kaplan. So, again, big location, back to smaller location, and so on. Then we go to the last big set piece. Yes. The climax of the film. Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore. I, other than the Grand Canyon. Right. There probably isn't a bigger set piece that they could have, a bigger location to go bigger than the cornfield. Right. With the horizon. Yeah. I mean, I the, agree. the final fight is on the faces yeah. of these presidents. Which is Foolish. Foolish. If Which you're they, ever being chased and you find yourself at the top of the faces of Mount Rushmore, figure out something other than trying to climb down the smooth stone faces of Mount Rushmore, please. Right. And they, and they make a point of showing the the mountain from far away so you see them small on this yeah. thing. This is the smallest that Roger ever gets in the film. And it's also the most helpless because yeah. there's a moment where Eve is dangling off the edge. She's trying to save her, and he's dangling off the edge. And he is so desperate that he calls out to the villain who is trying to kill him to yeah. help them. That's desperate. Extremely desperate. Um, the most humble that J- Roger gets. That villain played by Martin Landau. Martin Landau. Living legend Martin Landau. Yeah. Wait, is he still alive? I think he died. Did he? I don't know. We should look it up while we're talking about it. Well, nevertheless, legendary Martin Landau, very young in this movie, still looks like a terrifying human being. He looks like the kind of guy that you would expect to step on your fingers if you were hanging on a ledge. Oh, maybe he's still alive. He was the same age, roughly, as Eva Marie Saint. Oh, all right. In the film. Um... It says that he is still alive, according to Wikipedia. Okay, good. I feel better about this. Yeah. I have a knack for mentioning people who turn out to be dead, and it makes me sad. When I kind of thought, when we were watching the film, I was like, did he die? I couldn't mm. remember. Sure um, looked it up. Famous for Mission Impossible. Yeah. The TV series. Um, famous, very famous for Ed Wood with Johnny Depp, the oh, Tim yeah. Burton film. Uh, won an Academy Award for that. 
He did, didn't he? Yeah, he won Best Supporting Actor for that. That's great. Great actor. Yeah. I mean, he's he's Martin Landau. He's 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 seen it all, and he's done it all. So, he has this big fight on Mount Rushmore. Yes. And, of course, the good guy's probably going to win and get the girl at the end. So he's he's this small thing on this giant, the, this gargantuan face. And then once he's completed his mission and he's back in control, where is he? Back in that train car. Back in that train car. With his lady. On the top bunk. Yeah. With Mrs. Thornhill. It's probably not exactly how he said it, but it was close. Yeah, it was It was something pretty close. And the last shot of the film, fairly comical. Um, yes. If there's any kids listening, uh, parents plug, cover up their ears. Um, there is definitely a reference to them having sex at oh, the yeah. end of the film. Uh, he pulls her up onto the bunk. It's very clear that they're about to get busy and the train... As a newlywed couple is entitled yeah, to do. And the train enters the tunnel, literally. Yes. So... Um, that's kind of a fun thing. Uh, you, you have a couple, any other notes, any other thoughts? I feel like I've got so many. Um, hmm, nothing that really adds, sure. sheds light on anything. But um, one that was funny. Oh, so should we give up the truth about Kaplan or should we maybe I mean, let that be one thing that we... Sure, well, one thing we don't talk about. All right, so we're not going to tell you who Kaplan really is. Right. Uh, let's see here. Um, oh, I wanted to point out that uh, there was a very funny line early in the movie. Mm-hmm. I think it might even be before he gets kidnapped, where uh, where uh, where Roger Thornhill says something about uh, you know mothers just moved into this new place. It's all white paint and no telephone. Right. And it's ju- it just struck me as so odd that like I've never been alive in a time. Where you don't just move into a house and boom, set your phone line up. And now with cell phones, we don't even have to do that. We've just always right. got our own phone line. And so the idea that he says it almost as if it's a cliche about new houses. All white paint and no telephone. That cracked me up yeah. quietly. But it cracked me up that just, you know, when was this movie? 50, 60 years ago? Right. And it's like things have changed so drastically. It's funny you mention that. I actually watched a new movie in the theater recently. Yeah. And uh, one of the characters, uh, they're in an electronic shop and they're looking for a phone. Find a push button or rotary phone. They say that in this movie. It was made this last year. And I thought, those exist? Do those still exist? Huh. She, she said, it can't be an electric phone. It can't be something we have to plug in. Yeah. I, I, I blew my mind. But, um, wow. but, but, anyways, uh, I, I think it's just kind of going along with what you were saying about the phones. It, it's, yeah, sometimes it's interesting to go back and watch these older films and, and kind of realize the age that we live in now. Yeah, just see how different the world, or at least America, was back then. Yeah, it's trippy. It's trippy, man. <laughs> trippy. So, uh, it, it, I there was there was another thing that I thought was kind of interesting. Um, it's kind of a David Lean. Director David Lean, um, who directed Lawrence of Arabia, which is in our bucket. It's in the bucket. We might watch it. Um, We'll watch it eventually. Right. Uh, So it's sort of a David Lean thing um, that I love. It's it's one of my favorite techniques. And that's, um, you may not have noticed this, but almost the entirety of the film. Yes. Roger is on the left-hand side of the screen. 
almost the entire film. I don't think I did notice When you go back and you think about, you know, there's a few times when he's not, like when he's driving a car, you can't kind of get around that. Yeah. Um, But they do consistently show the car driving from the front of the car, so it's on the left side of the screen. Yeah. Um, When he sits across from the men in the bar at the very beginning of the film, he's on the left side of the screen. When he's in the taxi cab, left side of the screen. Walking with his assistant, left side of the screen. When he's yeah. on the train having dinner with Eve, left side of the screen. He's meeting with uh, uh, Van Damme at the end of the film at Mount Rushmore, left side of the screen. The part of the cliff that the hang, he hangs from, the left side of the of the mountain. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's sort of um, an odyssey thing, right? It's sort right. of a storybook kind of thing where when you read a book and you're going on this journey with these characters classically... You read from the left to the right, so you associate the left being the beginning and the right sort of being the end. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a neat, subtle trick to kind of show that this guy is sort of on this journey when he's on, when he's at the crossroads. What's that? Waiting the on the left, side, on of the left street. side of the street. Yeah. He comes in from sort of the left. Mm-hmm. I mean, they show the crossroads as a bit more of an X than a cross, but he certainly. Yeah, and when he when he goes the, into the corn, he yeah. goes in from the left. So good point. Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a neat, fun old school filmmaking technique technique that I really like. Um, I do want to point something out about it. Um, if you give me just one second, I'll give you so, nine seconds. So Hitchcock worked a lot with Jimmy Stewart, but he wanted Cary Grant for this role of Roger Thornhill. All right, um, and. Hitchcock was working with Jimmy Stewart. I can't recall the movie at the time um, off the top of my head, but he was working with Jimmy Stewart and he told him that he, he's got this film North by Northwest. He was super excited about it. Jimmy Stewart assumed because of his relationship with Hitchcock that the role was for him. Oh, and Hitchcock didn't know how to get out of that. Oh, so he delayed production on this film until he knew that Jimmy Stewart was busy filming something. So Jimmy Stewart had to turn the film down. Way to go, Hitchcock. Uh, just a little, a little fact that, you know, like this guy was super deliberate in everything he did. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the whole thing with the blondes, if you've seen Hitchcock or um, the other Hitchcock, the one that was on like HBO or whatever, oh, yeah. they did like a miniseries. There was Hitchcock and then there was The Girl, right? The Girl, yeah, which is another Hitchcock thing, yeah. basically. But, um, so he had this thing for blondes, so of course he casts Eve Marie Saint in it and her hair looks amazing in it. Um, it does. It does, right? Her hair was like truly exceptional in this yeah, film. Yeah, I have to wonder how many hours she spent in hair before each shot. Right. Her hair was. I mean, even to the point where like there's all these scenes where they're where they're Frenching each other. Yeah. Well, they're not at all. And he's they're, barely touching her hair. Yeah, they're kissing each other, and yeah, and I mean, you can plain as day see Cary Grant's hands just like near her head, but like almost like he was afraid to touch her gorgeous it's, hair. It's like Comic-Con rules. Like, you, yeah. when you go meet somebody, you're not really supposed to touch them. You just put yeah. the, your arm kind of around them, but never touch them. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so Hitchcock was so meticulous about everything, you know. So he took, he took uh, you know, he knew exactly who he wanted for the film, the, the blonde girl. He didn't like the wardrobe that they gave her initially, so yeah. he personally took her to, like, Bergdorf's and bought all of her clothes for her for the film so that because he was like i want her in these very specific things and i think when you when you first see her i want to say she's wearing black when he runs into her she's wearing a black overcoat sounds correct 
very important that she's wearing black there. But when she's in the train car later on and they're kind of dressed down, she's very white. She's wearing yeah. white and it, she's very pure. Um, and that's not a mistake. No. You know, and he went and picked those clothes out himself with her. Um, he planted a hundred trees on the studio lot so that way they could film this forest scene the way he wanted to shoot the forest scene. Wow. I mean, um, you know, he just was a cut above the rest and there aren't very many directors today that were, that are like that. Nope. I can think of a handful of them. I don't um, even know if I can think of a handful. Well, I mean, Maybe I three. Steven Spielberg. Yeah. David Fincher is probably one that's very meticulous. All right. Um, I feel like Tarantino goes in for some of that stuff. Tarantino more now than when he started. Yeah. Um, now he has the ability to do it. When he started, he didn't, he sort of like used what he could get. Yeah. Um, and so Tarantino stuff wasn't very imaginative early on. Yeah. Um, but now his stuff has scope. Right. Um, and so he has the ability to do that. So yeah, Tarantino maybe. Um, Anderson, Wes. Paul, Paul, Tom- oh, okay. Wes Paul Anderson, Thomas Paul Thomas Anderson, for sure. Yeah. The um, two Andersons. That's a handful right there. That's five. There you go. I mean, uh, we, we could go on and on. Um, I would say Ridley Scott used to be one, maybe not sure. as much now. Um, that's, that's like sort of the opposite of Tarantino, right? Like that's a dude who like had very, very specific things. And now it's sort of used, you feel like when you watch a Ridley Scott movie now that maybe you don't see his vision as well anymore. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to do an oldie and newie comparison. Sure. Like, well, I mean, go, go watch Alien. Yeah. And then Prometheus. Oh yeah. And compare those two and feel, see which one feels like it's more stylistic and which one feels more like a bland, like Hollywood film. I, I, I'm one of the few people I think that didn't have a problem with Prometheus. I mean, I definitely see problems that people had with it. They didn't ruin the movie for me. Um, I also think that there's some deeper things going on in Prometheus than most people are looking at. But, um, but yeah, you know, if you compare those two films, it's like apples and oranges. I'll have to try that. Yeah. So, so that was North by Northwest. Yes. Unless you've got something else to add about it. Well, I'd, I'd love to hear. I'm uh, trying to uh, inject a small segment called Steve's Coffee Countdown, mm. which is um, where I report on how long it took me to doze off during the movie mm-hmm. and my caffeine levels at the time. So in North by Northwest, I'd be willing to bet I was on probably nine hours of sleep and about three, maybe three and a half cups of coffee. But I started dozing off pretty quick watching this movie. I almost think it has just something to do with something to do with my brain's ability to focus on anything from before 1980. I don't know. I don't know why that is. Uh, I, I told Wes before, like when I was a little kid, I really just could not pay attention to anything on TV if it was in black and white. And this movie's in beautiful full color, but just. I just kept dozing off, and I was awake as I could possibly be when I came over here, but man, I it, just it, kept dozing off, and it drove me crazy. It is almost um, two and a half hours, and I yeah. will say... Well, two hours, 37. No, that was that was Sophie's Choice, which we'll get to in a minute. This was... I, I, I just looked at IMDb, and it said 2.16 on IMDb. Oh. So... Okay. Um, but... I think because of the intentional roller coaster of pacing, yeah. which nowadays I think people would look at as a real negative. People would say Absolutely. the pacing is inconsistent. 
I think when you do it intentionally like this, yeah. um, I think it has merit. Um, but I can understand how that could be like kind of off-putting to, yeah. the, to a modern viewer, and um, how that could maybe you know throw you throw your energy off. Yeah, and also I just think attention spans were just stronger back then because yeah. there wasn't so very much stuff competing for it. Yeah, you know? th- I mean. There were a lot of movies coming out, but going to the movies was like an ordeal. Like, right. You know, you wore nicer clothes. Right. Um, you know, the food was a little bit better. Like, even the candy back then was better quality chocolate and all that stuff. And it wasn't exactly cheap. It was it was a real experience going to the movies. Yeah. And, um, and now we're just so used to, like, people talking and turning their right. phones on and just, you know, we... we uh, I'm not gonna, I'm, you know, jerks being jerks. I'm not gonna, right. I'm not gonna go off on my my rules of going to the cinema rant. That's okay. Um, Everybody I, behave yourselves. Let's say that. I, I'm maybe one day if people want to know the rules of going to cinema as I see it, you know, we can discuss it. Um, but you know, like for me, like going to the cinema, cinema is like my church. I don't right. mean to, I don't mean to make anyone feel like I'm being sacrilegious or I'm not trying to be offensive towards anyone's religion. I'm using that term as a way to like help people understand the reverence that i feel yeah. towards going to cinema i don't actually worship cinema right. as if it's a deity um but but yeah so for lack of a better word it's my church so you know when i go to the theater and people are disrespectful you know they got their feet up on the things or whatever well, again if it's people not want your to know living my room rules, folks yeah my guess is anybody listening to this is already on our side probably so get your guns and no, I'm kidding. Don't. <laughs> oh, God, please don't. No, 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 no. I'm totally um, joking about uh, that. That's terrible. I actually committed a, a, uh, one, a, a sin against one of my rules. Oh. Since we're going with the church thing, let's go with sin. All right. Um, I was in the theater with a friend of ours recently, and um, uh, we saw somebody on screen that we both enjoy okay. that I didn't know was in the movie, and I was pointing at, like, look, 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 look. I don't and, think that's And we were kind of hushed, so like talking excited, except that there was something subtle they were doing with that character, and I kept pointing at him. Oh. And then the other person pointed at him when the subtle thing started happening, and I thought, if I was sitting behind us right now, I would be pissed off. Oh, okay. So I apologize if the people that were sitting behind me um, at Terminator Genesis... Oh, it was Terminator or, Genesis. Uh, if anybody's listening that was sitting behind me, I apologize for that. Um, I try not to do that again. Wes apologizes. I was not there, so I apologize for nothing. Fair enough. All right, should we should we move on to our next film? To the almost too lighthearted. Yeah, right. <laughs> Sophie's choice. Sophie's choice. Okay. Again, if you haven't watched Sophie's choice yet, pause. Come back to this after you've watched it. Go watch Sophie's Choice, starring Meryl Streep, Peter McNichol, as a guy named Stingo, and uh, Kevin Klein in probably his most uh, intimidating role. Yeah. This is the first time, and maybe the last time, I've ever seen Kevin Klein as an intimidating guy. Yeah. So, so that the, was weird. The film. Do you want to talk about what the film's about? Sure. You, you got this? I'll give you a. The brief overview with yeah. where it starts. It's 1948. World War II is over. And a young man, 22 years old, which when I was 22, I can't even imagine making the moves this guy made in this movie. A young man <laughs> from, the, from southern Virginia moves to Brooklyn, New York to pursue his dreams of being a writer. 
and he moves into this big, beautiful house, a, a boarding house, and he meets his neighbors, Sophie, played by Meryl Streep, and Nathan, played by Kevin Klein. They live in the room directly above his at the boarding house, which is very affectionately referred to as the Pink Palace. And there's a funny joke where uh, the lady who owns the house says, yeah, we got all this pink paint real cheap during the war. I guess they didn't have use for pink on all those battleships or something like that. I thought that was funny. You know, of course, a ship full of soldiers and sailors probably isn't going to have a lot of pink paint around. So anyway, he moves in and he gets a note from Sophie and Nathan inviting their new neighbor, Stingo, saying, Dear Stingo, we'd love to have you for dinner, Sophie and Nathan. He then meets them completely coincidentally because they are having, well, because Nathan is having a pretty one-sided, horrible argument with Sophie. Not even an argument. He's just a tantrum, yes. And he's just saying, like, I don't need you, Sophie. Ah, I need you like I need all these diseases. And then he says, I need you like I need death. And then he says, go back to Krakow. Go back to Krakow. Which, of course, suggests that she is a Polish woman. Poland, World War II. Things weren't great. The movie goes on from there. Yeah, and it's sort of about um, this guy's relationship with this woman who he almost immediately i think has feelings for oh sure um especially because he's young um he's a writer so he's a romantic absolutely um and he and he sees that this guy comes back and he's important to this woman and they're very clearly all over each other oh yeah so there's not really a lot of way to get in between that and i don't think he's the type of character who typically would get between people so he becomes very close friends with them and they begin this friendship throughout the film yes and Sporadically, Nathan loses his shit over paranoid thoughts. Yeah, he keeps thinking Sophie's cheating on him with various people. Including uh, Stingo. Including Stingo himself. Um, But then, you know, ten minutes later, he's singing their praises, the two of them, for this, that, and the other thing. Right. It's very topsy-turvy and, and, you know, dear sweet Nathan, he's got his his troubles. Yeah, it's interesting because the journey that you take with these people to kind of like understand who they are, it's told kind of in flashback. So the right. movie, the movie is essentially a flashback because it's narrated by Stingo as an, as an older man, as an adult. Right. Um, so we're hearing his account of, of meeting these people and, and befriending them. Um, so in that sense, the movie is a flashback, but then characters will talk about this, you know, Sophie loves to tell the story of how we met or how Nathan saved her life. And then you get a long 15, 20 minute flashback that essentially in another film would be, you know, not an opening scene or maybe maybe even the opening to a film about how characters might meet each other and fall in love. And, but it's, you know, 20 minutes into the film. Yeah. And it's long and it's long. It's, It's 20, 20 minutes, maybe, maybe a little longer. I would, yeah, I would think. I would think right um, around there. And then later again, you get, um, you find out that pretty early on that uh, Sophie um, was in a concentration camp. Oh yeah, we see her her tattoo on her inner forearm. I think on her first meeting. On the first with meeting Stingo. with him. Yeah. yeah. And so he assumes she's Jewish, but she's not. And um, and so when we finally learn the story of Sophie in how she got to this concentration camp and yeah. what her life was like in the concentration camp. That's another like 30, 40 minutes. And 
it's kind of strange because the scenes where they're all palling around together, like there's montages and stuff, yeah. and they're, they go on a ridiculous amount of picnics. They do go on a lot of... I guess there wasn't really any TV back yeah, then, yeah, so, so why not go on a picnic at a different yeah, park? They were all weekend. poor. Yeah. Um, and so you you have those scenes, and then you have these long scenes about being in a concentration camp. It almost feels like you're watching different films. Oh, absolutely. It's totally bizarre, but kind of works for this film. Yes. Uh, real quick, I want to address something. Okay. I absolutely... Did not want to watch this film, um, and this I is and this is why what we're doing is amazing to me, yeah. and why I'm so happy we're doing this because this is the perfect film to be in our bucket because I didn't want to watch the film and I loved it. Yeah, I thought it was a great movie, um, and I maybe loved it is maybe a little too far. It's maybe a little longer than I would like, but yeah. Um, but I thought. The performances were great, and I'm not a Meryl Streep fan. I'm, oh, really? I'm, I'm not the... Bi- so you're the one. I mean, I think she's a great actress. I just don't enjoy watching her in film. I think she. Okay. I think she's believable. I just don't... Something about her has always kind of put me off. Interesting. Um, but, she. I, again, she's just so good. And this is the first time I can think of where I see her truly unrecognizable. Oh, yeah? Um, she... I, I don't think I've ever seen her play a character that that comes across as not as intelligent right. or um, unsophisticated in a way. Um, this character is innocent, and um, while she's educated in her previous world, in the Polish world, yeah. um, as an American, she's not educated, and so she's kind of aloof, and she um, makes mistakes, and right. she does she. Doesn't know how to say stuff. I mean, it's just it's just really interesting because it's the I'm trying to like think of the word that I I used for it, but it's clue. She seems clueless. Yeah. In the film, um, and that felt really refreshing for me. And it's so weird to like have having seen Meryl Streep be so confident and strong or evil or whatever. Yeah. For my entire life, go back and watch a film. You know from. I think I was like two years old, three years old, maybe when yeah, this movie what, came out. What year was this? 80? I, I want to say it was eighty-one. Eighty-one. All um, right. So go back and watch this film from much earlier in her career than I've seen, and just be kind of enlightened by Meryl Streep. Yeah, and that's kind of that's why we're doing this. That's why I'm excited about this thing. I agree. Um, so, so yeah, but but kind of talking about like how it's sort of different films all over. Um, I couldn't decide at the time whether I liked that or not. Okay. But because it did work for the film, I, I ultimately kind of, kind of came down on the side of you know, for it. All right. Um, but it's not a very, in my opinion, not very stylistic. Um, no? The, I don't feel like there was ever um, a director or a cinematographer or anything that really like stamped their mark on this. Okay. You know, we watched Hitchcock, which is very clearly stylistic it's got a very a very specific thing going on yeah um editing wise as well north by northwest um with this though it was really about performance and i'm sure that the deciding not to be too crazy about the camera angles and um i thought the film stock was interesting it was very grainy probably 16 millimeter is my guess oh all right um i don't know a thing about film stock um i mean it could have been 35 but it, it was really grainy um and that also could be the transfer maybe just didn't go through very well but yeah uh 
yeah, it just didn't feel maybe I, I maybe that's by design. You know, mm-hmm. maybe it was about, hey, these are these are performances. And from what I understand, like Meryl Streep literally begged on her hands and knees to oh, get this yeah? part. Yeah. Wow. So um, uh, which, which is a heck of a thing to beg for, because she spoke how many different languages in this? At least three. I think we, we hear three. She makes references to speaking five or six. Yeah. But I mean, we hear her. In Polish, I'm sure. Polish, just like super fluent. Polish, French, German, super fluent, and German. English. So, so we hear we hear four of them. She yeah. briefly speaks French, I think, in the film. Yeah, I'm sure there's a little bit of French in there. But yeah, and I mean, you know, eat your heart out, uh, Christoph Waltz. Like, well, and she's doing she an accent that's not native to her, right? You know, she's yeah. she's doing this Polish accent as well. And then, and then when she's doing German, she sounds German. She's doing, you know, a German accent. Yeah. And they, they make sort of make a point about how she speaks flawless German. Right. You know, they make the a point quite a few times. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, way to go, Streep. I see big things in her future. Yeah. Right. I see really big, uh, really big things for Meryl Streep. Now, sort of the opposite to her though is Kevin Klein. Yeah. He absolutely dominates every time he's on screen. Yeah. He runs the show when he's on screen. It's mm-hmm. whether he's throwing a tantrum or being happy or singing and dancing or conducting an imaginary orchestra or climbing on a railing on a bridge. Yeah. Every time he's on screen in this film. <laughs> on the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah, right? Like, he's just the force. He's next to Meryl Streep, who is a force unto herself. Right. But in this role, again, she's like clueless. She's like along for the ride almost. Yeah. And he takes the reins and it's amazing it's really really fun to watch again really about the performances and um uh stingo uh peter mcnichol peter mcnichol thank you yes um plays kind of a more understated character like yeah. like a much more grounded he's he's like us like he's our eyes like yeah. our window into all of this that's going on so it's like he kind of like retreats and lets Kevin Klein and Meryl Streep sort of do their thing, and it's awesome to watch. Yeah, I was really happy with that. I liked uh, I liked the performances a lot. Again, um, uh, definitely the first time I've ever seen Kevin Klein as an intimidating guy, which struck me as odd because I've never really thought of him as intimidating. And even in this, I was sort of like, I don't know. I mean, Stingo. Granted, he's the smaller of the two, but there are some scenes where Klein's kind of getting in his face about stuff. Mm. He he makes. A few references. He says the N-word a few times Mm -hmm. and makes references about how, you know, Stingo's from the South. Therefore, he must have been involved in some lynchings and that sort of thing. And, I mean, if I was Stingo, like, smaller guy or not, I probably would have swung at Nathan's face for saying something like that. Especially just being a, you know, a Southern kid. I mean... My guess is that Stingo probably grew up a little more rough and tumble. Yeah, a little scrappy. Than Nathan did. Yeah, Nathan being just, you know, a, a city boy who's, you know, got by the... We kind of learn he comes from a pretty darn good family yeah. and all that. So, for for Kevin Klein to be, to be imposing and intimidating Stingo, that rubbed me a little bit of the wrong way. But, uh... But again, we we never get to see Kevin Klein be intimidating, so it was a neat uh, it was neat to see this new this new thing. Yeah, my so shoe squeaked. Th- so throughout the film, uh, we see this relationship sort of deteriorate. Yeah, uh, Kevin Klein, um, Nathan, and Sophie's relationship deteriorate, and then be brought back together, and then deteriorate and be brought back together, and of course Stingo 
who I keep wanting to call Ringo, <laughs> Stingo, um, is watching all of this, and every time they break up, you can sort of see it in his eyes, like, I'm going to get my chance. Right. And then they get back together, and then he's just kind of like, just right along with Stingo, you just go, huh. Yeah. Poor guy. Well, um, but he was getting kind of creepy with it, too, because like in the one pretty early breakup when she's she's telling him a story and the tears are occasionally trickling down her face and then he's reaching over and like rubbing the tears off her face with his thumb but he's getting like way too intimate sure for this horribly sad story that she's telling right and you know so for that i was kind of like i kind of i'm i'm rooting against stingo in this particular Aww. scene just a little bit i was really rooting for him with leslie lupitas yeah, Leslie Lupitas. Okay, let's, let's talk about a, Leslie Lupitas. That was a fun uh, <laughs> little break from the rest of the movie. So Nathan hooks him up with this girl. Leslie Lupitas. Is it Lupitas or Lupitas? I, uh, I looked up the spelling. It's Lou, huh? I think it's Lupitas. 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 But Leslie. We'll just stick with Leslie. Uh, who played her? Did you see? Oh, man. I looked it up on IMDb. She didn't have a picture up. Her name was, look I want to say Gwen something. But she was, talking. I'd refer to her as a brunette bombshell, um, who 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 uh, Stingo meets, well on she, the beach. She's friends with Nathan and other people, and now, the stuff she's saying is one thing. Yeah, but her presence is so freaking adorable. Oh yeah, like you 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 absolutely root for that relationship. I wish that relationship would have worked out. Me too, because um, it would have been great for Stingo. But uh, should I just? get into what she's all about yeah yeah go ahead and talk about her so stingo meets her on the beach and in the voiceover he says that i owe nathan uh for introducing me to leslie and it cuts to leslie and she's in this gorgeous bathing suit and she's up on her hands and knees and stingo's sitting in the sand and she's leaning very far forward and talking to him about literally like how much she likes to have sex and then she's dropping the f-bomb a lot. yeah she's saying the f-word all over the place and then stingo says something like she was like uh, th- this is a big paraphrase, but he says something like, she was like the answer to my every horny prayer or something like that. <laughs> and now, I don't think I knew at this point in the movie that Stingo was only 22. He says it much later in the movie, I was 22. And you don't learn that he's a virgin until the end of the film either. Until the end of the film as well, yeah. So, uh, you know, I mean... So what a letdown for Stingo when this thing doesn't work out. Yes, because he gets invited to Leslie's house for like the weekend... And um, she just keeps going on and on about how excited she is to get to have sex and all this stuff. And then once they start making out, you know, he tries to do something more than kissing and she just freaks out and she says, what was it she told him? She, I can say it, but yeah. I can't do it. That's right. She's She says basically she's been... She kept referencing like she's been going through psychological analysis. Yeah. yeah. And that so she's finally gotten gotten herself comfortable to a place where she can talk about sex, which is seems to be all she talks about, but she can't actually do it. And so of yeah. course Stingo is crestfallen. Some very Kinseyan kind of thing going on. Yeah. There. I could have Leslie should have been in every scene as far as I'm concerned. So she's Greta Turkin. Greta Turkin. Um Greta Turkin, we love you wherever you are. She her IMDb yeah. lists. One film. Wow. The only thing listed on IMDb is Sophie's Choice. Wowzers. As an actress. Huh. Yeah. She was great. I wonder who she... She's like 50-something. Pissed off in Hollywood. No, I'm kidding. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, 
Wow, so, that was her only role. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. So, to, to kind of talk a little bit more about what happens in the film. Um, so, the Sophie-Nathan relationship keeps is like on again, off again. Kind yeah. Of thing. But off again because um, Nathan is a total whack job. Yeah. And keeps just losing his mind. Which we learn eventually in the film is because he's a paranoid schizophrenic. Right. And he's been keeping it a secret. Right. At first, they almost kind of make it look like he just goes out, he gets a little drunk, and he gets jealous. Yeah, he gets jealous. But then we learn. They make it sort of look like he's always looking for a fight. Like he goes and walks around. She talks about he went out walking one night into some neighborhood. And he came back and his jaw was, I thought it was broken. and Yeah, his jaw was swollen and his eye. See, I, when she was telling that story, I was thinking Nathan might be, you know, uh-huh. hanging out with some, some street boys in the shadows uh, once in a while. See, I was, and I took that as, you know, they sort of imply that he gets a little sauced and then comes home and shakes the girl about. Yeah. Um, but then they talked about that. So I thought, well, he's going out looking for a fight. Yeah. This guy. Um, and he's found an easy target with Sophie. Right. So, um, that it goes off again and on again, on again, because Sophie appears to be, um, kind of like a battered housewife. Yeah. They, they actually make her appear very weak. And I don't want to imply that battered housewives are, uh, weak or only weak or whatever. I'm not, I'm not taking a stance on that. Um, but, but that's how they make Sophie appear. Yeah. And it turns out that that's not the case. I don't believe. Uh-oh. Um, and we learn why that's not the case by more backstory of her in, um, the concentration camp. Yeah. Auschwitz. Was it, was it Auschwitz that she was in? I couldn't remember. Yes, because when she's talking to the little girl, the little girl keeps saying Doc, like Dachau. it was better at Dachau or something like yeah. that. So yeah, she ends but. up. Um, she tells them initially that um, her daughter was taken, or her son was taken to a children's camp. Yes, the daughter was taken away and sent to the crematorium. Yeah, and that she was put in a different camp, and that we find out that she. Um, Ends up because she speaks flawless German and she did so much dictating for her father, yes, um, and typing and whatnot, that um, she's the perfect secretary for um, the military, uh, the Nazi the, officer that's the, running the camp, the commandant, the commandant, commandant Hess. So, um, so they bring her in and she's sort of pseudo enlisted yeah. by um, some other fellow inmates to. Maybe steal a radio so they could help fight, you know, become the resistance, basically. And she's extremely hesitant because she doesn't want to get shot. And she's got a son that she hasn't seen. Um, And so she sort of says no, but we see her kind of flirt with it a couple times in the film. She basically fails at that. Um, She does flirt with the commander. Yeah. um, Specifically to try and either get released... Yeah. Or get her son released. And um, it's implied to her that he's going to get released. To the... Uh, to a program where they take kids that look like they're German. The Lebensborn. Yes. To, yeah. to make them... Raise them as the perfect Germans. Right. Germanize and, them. And the day that she's supposed to see her son 
and say farewell to him before he goes off to that. Um, they she she is betrayed by the guy and right. he he leaves. He moves away. The commandant and she's back in the regular camp and doesn't see her son ever again. So that's that's a, that's the initial story that we get near the end of the film. Yeah, we she tells us another piece of that story a missing piece of the story and it wasn't just that her children were should we go back to what happens in the main story between here and when she sure yeah alrighty so after she tells us about her time in the concentration camps and then working as essentially a slave for this commandant and his family um, then it cuts back to the you know present day she's with Stingo and Nathan has had yet another outburst. This time, it seems like he's gone on a rampage. Yes. And Stingo calls back to the boarding house saying that he's got a gun. And basically... No, Stingo. Nathan calls No, back. Nathan, yes. Nathan calls back to the boarding house. Stingo answers the phone. And you can hear Nathan on the other end of the phone basically saying, like, I've got a gun and I'm going to be shooting the two of you. Long story short. And then you hear him fire the gun and you think for a minute, oh, maybe he shot himself. And then, sure enough, he's talking again and he's like, Stingo, keep Sophie off the... What was it? I'm coming for you. Yeah, I'm coming for you. Yeah, so Stingo and Sophie go on the run. They catch a train to Washington, D.C. And they're staying in a hotel room for the night. And Stingo says to Sophie, you know, next we're going to go back to my family's farm in southern Virginia and we're going to buy a, a, a phonograph and some records and this, that, and the other thing. And she's sort of like, well, what are you talking about, Stingo? Like, where are these ideas coming from? And Stingo, being 22 years old and essentially unemployed and now on the run from Sophie's mad lover, says to Sophie, I love you, Sophie, and I want to marry you. Which seems like the most dysfunctional choice anybody could possibly make at that point in this story. <laughs> and it, and it's, her response is actually kind of interesting because she kind of like, again, in sort of Sophie, in a Sophie way, she yeah. kind of goes with it. She's like, well, we can go to the farm. Yeah. And we can live at the farm. But marriage, I don't know. I wouldn't be a good mother to your children. Right. And she she kind of harps on that a little bit. And like, he's like, no, you'd be great. And yeah, she's Stingo like, says, any child would be lucky to have you as a mother. Right. So, and we know that her children were taken from her. Yeah. So, then we get we go back and we find out the missing piece of the story, which is them coming off the train at the concentration camp. Right. Her and her two children. And we come to the... Uh, partially the the titular line of the of the film which is she has to make a choice so she tries to convince um this this nazi officer that she doesn't belong there that she's not jewish right and that she helped her father with the jewish problem that they were they were not communist and that they um were in agreement with the Nazi party over the extinction of the Jews. Although right. deep down inside, she'd already expressed that she didn't believe that. Right. But, um, she but to save her children and herself, she absolutely was like, Hey, I'm, I'm a Nazi sympathizer. Yeah. And the guy kind of toys with her. And basically he's like, you're still a dirty Polak. This is essentially yeah. what he calls her. Sorry if I offended anyone, but that's what he says. And he tells her, pick one of your children to lose. Or I'm going to make you lose both of them. Yep. 
And she says, no, no, no. And so he's like, take them both. And so she says, take my little girl. Yeah. Take the little girl. And they rip the little girl from her arms. And she screams this blood-curdling scream, uh, the little girl, yeah. over and over again. And then Meryl Streep does the very famous silent scream yeah. as Sophie, where she's watching her daughter be dragged away. And she opens her mouth to scream. And it's completely soundless and terrifying. So she makes what is seemingly an impossible choice. Mm-hmm. Um. Then we come back to our story with Stingo and Sophie in the hotel room. They get busy. They do get busy. He finally loses. That's when we find out he's a virgin. And that he's 22. And that he's 22. Which is alarmingly young to be making every decision he's made in this movie, if you ask me. Yeah, I don't know. I feel but like I back, then, it was a different time. back then people like got married really like out of high school kind of a thing. Yeah. You know? People went off to war and got married before they went off to war when they were kids and True. stuff like that. You know, like he's seen. And, and at the beginning of the film, is he coming back from war? I don't Or is he just moving to New York? So. I think he's just moving to New York. Yeah. Because if he's 22 right now. The reason why I ask that is he's on the bus and there's a sailor next to him. And true. when he's walking up the tunnel out of the bus station, he's got this bag slung over his back. And I, oh. I got the impression that maybe it was a duffel bag. So I sort of got the impression that maybe Stingo had fought in the war. But they never address it. They never mention it in anywhere else and in the film. And he certainly doesn't come across as, as a soldier who's seen any sort of... He's small hardship at all. That's true. That's true. It's unclear to me, but um, I wondered if he almost doesn't seem tough enough to have grown up on a farm for that matter. Right, like but he could have been. He could have been, you know, a writer in the army, or maybe, you know, yeah. like stuck in some office sending. That's possible. Journal entry. I don't know. Whatever. But so, so we find out he's twenty-two. That he finally has sex for the first time. He's got the woman of his, who he th- believes is the woman of his dreams. Definitely yeah. the woman of his fantasies for however long he's been living in Brooklyn. Right. And um, he uh, he wakes up to find a note telling him that she has made another choice. Yes. The other part of the title, and Sophie has chosen to go back to Nathan. And when Stingo tracks them down in Brooklyn he gets back to the Pink Palace and there's police line across the front and the police mm-hmm. cars outside and he finds Nathan's brother there and Nathan has used cyanide to kill himself and Sophie yes and that's sort of the sad ending of this film and in a way appropriately tragic I think for the story it's sad and you 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 know, you definitely could be rooting for and should be rooting for Stingo and Sophie to be together, probably because yeah. it saves her life, right? Um, and it probably even saves Nathan's life. But keep going. But I just thought of a question. Yes, but it's tragically appropriate in the decision that she makes, and this is where I want to like kind of bring back what I said earlier, and that's it seems like she continues to be in this relationship with Nathan because she's weak. But the answer is she's not weak. She survived the concentration camp. Right. She believes that she deserves to be treated this way. She, she even says to, to him and on the, the bus or the train or whatever, when they leave New York, I don't care if I die. Yeah. She, she believes. And that's the, that's, you know, the, the, the choice of having to choose between your children is 
obviously heartbreaking and sad. The most heartbreaking part to me amongst this all of this whole thing is that not that because someone forced her to do that. It's not like she made a heartbreaking choice of her own free will. Right. That would be tragic. Yeah. This was tragic, but that would be tragic. Yeah. What's really heartbreaking in this film to me is that she believed that she deserved to be with this abusive Right. erratic person because she thought she was a terrible person for for making that choice right earlier in the film um and that's that's really sophie's choice like right mm. it's not that she chose the the kid it's not that she chose to go back i mean they're little pieces of it not that she chose to go back to him but that she chose to go back to him because she chose that she's a bad person yeah you know it's and that's sad question yeah do you think Dying in bed together of cyanide poisoning might have been Sophie's idea. Because it just occurred to me that maybe it was. I, You know, I don't think so. I don't no? think there's anything to indicate. She tried to kill herself earlier in the movie. She did. We see the scars on her wrists and she explains to Stingo. But that, there's nothing to tried. indicate that Nathan wants to die. He's crazy. Yeah. And paranoid. But he always comes out of that. Yeah. He doesn't have, like, a manifesto of death. He has a manifesto of killing the people that have wronged him, but he never says that he's going to kill himself. Um, So? So I think... Even more so, don't you think Sophie might have poisoned the two of them? I don't think so. I think it was unbeknownst to to Sophie. I don't know. That's a good question. It it could be. And that that brings about an an interesting different point of view, I guess. Um, Well... I said interesting a lot during this podcast. I'm going to try not to right. say it so much next. You're allowed to. It's a perfectly cromulent word, Wes. <laughs> cromulent. Um, Sounds delicious. Because it just occurred to me. Mm. All right, so check this out. If faced with the horrible decision that cho- that Sophie had to make outside of that train when it was either let her son be killed by the Nazis or mm-hmm. let her daughter be killed by the Nazis. It's a horrible decision. Knock on wood that nobody I know or myself ever has to make it. But right. if I were in her position and I had a son, he's older than the daughter, you know, he's a strong little kid about to have to go into a concentration camp or a daughter about to have to go into a concentration camp, possibly have to grow up, you know, being constantly used by Nazi soldiers and whatnot, the Joy Division, all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I might say, take my daughter too. You know what I mean? Mm. Maybe. I mean, it's like... If you had time to think about that. Maybe she did. I don't know. But if I had time to think about it, I might be like, you know what? Spare my daughter's... Pain. Pain. Yeah. And get her out of here now, I guess. It's terrible, but maybe. And therefore, if... And we don't know for sure, but if it was Sophie's idea to poison herself and Nathan in the bed with the cyanide, might she have been sparing Stingo from the misery that she and Nathan would continue to cause him? I I think it's an interesting idea. Um, I don't know if I buy it. Okay. Partially because she never takes the reins with Nathan ever. That's true. Maybe, and this, maybe this time she finally did. They suggest that the cyanide came from the pharmaceutical company. He works at Pfizer. True. And that he took the the cyanide from the pharmaceutical company 
for her to sort of mastermind that seems contrary to the rest of the film to okay. me. However, him killing her and himself seems more plausible to me. Yeah. I'm not saying that what you're saying doesn't have merit because I think it's a really interesting idea. Um, I appreciate that. just right now, yeah. without having to give up, being able to give it a, a lot of thought, I feel like the other way has more credence. Do they say he got it from the lab, or do they say we think he got it from the they, lab? They I feel like there's there was a, a cop think outside, and he says, "We." I think he says, we think that he took it from the lab, He the cyanide from the lab yeah. that he worked at. Maybe Sophie got it. Or the Sophie, company. having worked under a Nazi commandant, she's going to know what cyanide can do. Yeah, and it's interesting. Do we ever learn what Sophie does for a living? I don't think we do. Well, yeah. uh, there, nice there's... Place. There's the part... Well, no. I mean, like... She goes to class? Yeah, and there's the part where... I feel like they must Sting have goes somewhere. looking for her, so he goes to a place of business to ask about oh, he, her Oh, she friend. works for the chiropractor. She works oh, she the, does work she works for the, for the, the chiropractor. Okay. That's right. She's a secretary or something for the chiropractor. For Dr. Katz. Not Dr. Katz, professional therapist. Oh, man. That'd be crazy. That would be crazy. If, like, um, the whole movie, she, her, her whole body was, like, trembling. Yeah. Sophie, um, tell me about your choice. That's not a great Dr. Katz impression, but I haven't seen the show in 10 years. What do you want sure. from me? Okay. All right, fair enough. Sophie's choice. So, I I mean, unless you have anything else to add, I think um, that's Sophie's I, I took so many notes. Choice. Let's see. Let's see here. We got uh, that. Oh, well, I can do Steve's uh, coffee countdown. Okay, Steve's coffee countdown. Hang on, though. Oh, here's some fun, uh, some fun uh, casting notes. If you're yeah. a fan of Adam Sandler's Billy Madison, Sandler's pretty much his first starring role. Uh, the guy who plays the principal, a.k.a. the professional wrestler, the revolting blob, is in this movie. That's act- actor Josh Mostel. He's got a funny but very small role in this movie. Well, funny but very short-lived. He plays Morris, the guy who lives upstairs. And he's I a, thought he's was- the guy He's the guy kind of at the end, of, who shows up right at the end of the movie, and everybody's talking over him, and he's telling him that, Nathan's looking for you. Studio. Yes, that is correct. And everybody's and I, that's actually a scene I really love because it's um again kind of an older technique. Spielberg liked to do it. Yes. Um. Uh. And I saw it re- as recently as Super Eight does it, where people all talk at the same time. Right. Um. And uh, and then you have to sort of hone in on where yeah. the real information is. And it's so realistic and natural. Right. I, I wish more movies did stuff like that. But yeah, that that was a really great scene. I was kind of going, where the hell has this guy been the whole movie? Because this guy's like a hoot. Yeah. He's hilarious. We could have used more Morris. Yeah. The I'll movie was it. the movie was surprisingly funny. Um, going back to saying that I, I didn't want to watch this movie. when we when So we did draw these out of the... I mean... We must have if I didn't want to see this movie. Yeah. Um, I drew... So, Steve drew, drew, uh, drew... Having a hard time speaking all of a sudden. Drowned. He drowned. No, that's no. a different word altogether. He drew North by Northwest out of the Muppet Bucket. Yes. I drew this, and as soon as I looked at it, I just kind of like stomped my feet. And I was like, no. And I even offered Wes several times. I said, go ahead and draw again. It's our first episode. No harm, no foul. Draw again. But Wes stuck to the rules, and he played... The game with Sophie's choice. Yeah, I mean, I felt like we established a rule. We should we should stick to it. Um, but I really and so we sat down. I was like, all right, let's watch Sophie's choice today. And um, about twenty minutes in the movie, I was hooked. I was by at least by maybe even ten minutes in, maybe even as early as him carrying uh, pallets full of spam into his room. This I was like, this is not the movie I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Um, I I had a lot of misconceptions about this film. I thought it took place in the eighties. 
Oh, I yeah? thought it was going to be about abortion. Oh. I um, had no idea what this movie's about. I, I never learned what the plot was, ever. So, again, kind of a beautiful thing about this um, this idea that we have is that I'm going to force myself to watch movies and hopefully be pleasantly surprised. And right. so far, I mean, I, I love North by Northwest. I love Alfred Hitchcock and um, his style. And I was so pleasantly surprised by this. And I really enjoyed a, a, a Meryl Streep movie. And Yeah. <laughs> um, well, Deer Hunter's still in that bucket somewhere, too. Is, she Mer- is Meryl Streep in Deer Hunter? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. John oh, Voight's in that, too, right? No. No. Who am uh, I thinking of? Robert De Niro. Uh, I think John Savage. Oh, okay. Christopher Walken, of course, won oh, his Oscar for Walken. it. Meryl Streep and a famous NFL player whose name is completely cool. escaping me right OJ now. O.J. Simpson. No, not O.J. Simpson. It's <laughs> um he plays the character of Axel, and now his name is just all the way. All out right, of my well, brain. we'll make it a surprise yeah. when we see it. When we see Deer Hunter, we'll talk Deer Hunter. Oh, we were going to talk about our our lists of some some of these. Oh yes. movies. We'll we'll do that briefly. Um, all right. So we were going to talk about it during the middle. Should I wrap up Sophie's Choice real quick? Yeah, wrap up Sophie's Choice while I look for my list. All right, some things to be on the lookout for. Uh, they say the N word within the first five minutes. Be careful there if you don't like hearing that. Um, as much as your hopes may be getting up as you watch this movie, there is no devil's threesome in this movie. So relax. Uh, there's a funny scene on the Brooklyn Bridge where they do this shot where it draws way out from the Brooklyn Bridge on a, I'm assuming shooting from a helicopter. Mm-hmm. And you can clearly see some cars going by that are probably like late seventies, early eighties models cars. Yeah. I mean, they're pretty blurry, but you can kind of tell if you, if you know your way around automobiles, like, Oh, those cars did not exist in 1948. That was a, just a funny little Easter egg there. And then um, uh, Leslie needed more Leslie. And now for Steve's coffee countdown. Mm. I came in to watch this movie. Now remember, North by Northwest, I was on about nine hours of sleep, three and a half cups of coffee, and I was dozing off really fast mm-hmm. and multiple times. Sophie's Choice, I was on probably nine-ish hours of sleep. Only a half a cup of coffee. I've only had half a cup of coffee today, folks. And I did not doze off during Sophie's Choice until probably 40 minutes from the end of the movie. I think somewhere in the scene where Sophie's working in the Nazi commandant's house, I dozed off for just a brief moment. I caught myself. I woke up. I kept paying attention. So I don't know what that could mean. Well, I want to I say that I... I don't drink coffee. I do drink a lot of iced tea, but yeah. um, I, I did not doze off during either of these films. Although at the be- at the beginning of this one, I was a little sleepy, but I think it was just because it's warm in the sure. apartment. I should also point out I'm on a very comfortable couch here at Wes's. Yeah, and it's warm. It's it's a bit on the toasty side. It's just right for me knocking out. So the fact that I was able to stay awake so well during Sophie's Choice is a testament to how lively and entertaining this movie really is, even though it's about one of the saddest things ever. Yeah, and I think I think people probably, you know, people that haven't seen it or don't know much about it, like myself, um, probably will have the same attitude that I had, where yeah. I was just like, I just don't want to see this film. And I got to tell you people that it's it's worth a watch. Yeah. And I was feeling, I'd seen it when I was very young. Just know it's two and a half hours. And I was, yeah, know how long it is. And I was feeling the same way. I was like, do I want to put myself through Sophie's Choice again? And I'm happy to say that now that I have put myself through it again, I'm glad I did. No, I I probably like North by Northwest better. Yeah. Of the two films. Um, 
I, 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 I we didn't really talk about this, but it was sort of like in a kind of a funny way. It's sort of a spoof on spy films. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, it's sort of takes a classic spy film and turns it on its ear by having a, a non-spy be the spy. That's right? a good point. That's a great point. Um, so I, and it's Alfred Hitchcock, so it's like hard for me to not have a good time. True. Watching what he does. He keeps it, things interesting. I, that's I, for damn sure. I will backtrack real quick on, on Sophie's choice on one thing. Well, okay. I don't think it was a very stylistic movie. I did notice some things probably in the more so in the first third of the film. Um, and that's, they did some really cool, some cool shots with lighting and they used lighting as a, as a way to texture walls. Yeah. So, you know, you have this pink house and I, I can't imagine that shooting in a pink house is very dynamic. Yeah. Um, they use the lighting to create shadows and sort of texture on the walls by like having the, the, um, banister of the, of the stairway on the back wall to create these lines. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, they used reflection really early on. They used reflection on the bus when he's sitting in the bus. Right. They use reflection when he gets off the bus and he's coming up the stairs out of a tunnel and the lights coming in on these tiled walls. Um, they use a lot of vectors to sort of make your, draw your eyes towards again, when he's coming up those stairs, your eyes draw towards this guy who's just, essentially coming out of his old life and into Brooklyn. Yeah. The Brooklyn bridge obviously uses a lot of vectors to draw your eyes down to the three. Oh yeah. So, um, there were things, it's not like it was not without merit. Um, visually it just, um, not so much as, uh, North by Northwest. That's just a visual feast. It's a lot of fun to, to look at. Right. Agreed. So real quick, let's talk about some of the movies on our list. I'll talk about a few of mine. I'm just going to pick a few. We talked about Deer Hunter. I've never seen Chinatown. I know. Can you believe this? Um, I mean, you're the only other person in the room, so you can believe it because you're the one who hasn't seen it. Uh, But I'm astonished. I've watched Chinatown at least least twice this year. Right. Um, I have never seen Cabaret. Mm. I don't know if I've seen Cabaret the movie. I have never seen The Last Picture Show. I don't think I've seen The Last Picture Show. Well, that's good because it's on the list. <laughs> right. Sunset Boulevard. I've never seen Sunset Boulevard. A handful of Charlie Chaplin films. Oh, yeah. Um, there was several that are in the Muppet bucket. Um, so how about you? How, what were some of the movies that you had on your list of movies you haven't movies seen? Movies I have not seen. Let me go to that list. And then we'll do the Muppet bucket and then we'll say goodbye. For my movies I have not seen... And to make sure I was only listing movies that are worth seeing, I consulted the AFI's 100 best movies list. Um, I'll go toward the top of the list and just pick a few. Now, I'm going to go ahead and technically say I haven't seen Casablanca because I know I've been in a room while Casablanca was on and tried to pay attention to it, but I was much younger. My ADD was firing in all directions. So I haven't really sat down, paid attention to, focused on, and enjoyed Casablanca. There, I said it. All right. You have several um, Humphrey Bogart movies on your list. I really do. Yeah. Also on that list, Schindler's List. Yeah. I haven't been able to bring myself to watch Schindler's List. That's my version of Chinatown. Like, like you, you are surprised I've never seen Chinatown. Sure. I'm surprised that you have not seen Schindler's List. Because I just don't. Like, I'm familiar enough with that horrifying subject matter. It's hard for me to just willingly dive into a movie about it. 
But because of this show, I'm going to do that just as soon as we pick it out of this bucket. Well, look look at what happened with Sophie's Choice. Exactly. I mean, we thought that was going to be a lot harder to watch than it was. And, you and know, we both enjoyed it. We both enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Uh, the Bridge on the River Kwai, another Humphrey Bogart movie. No. Another one I have not that, seen. That one's on bogey. It's not? No, I don't believe so. Bridge on the River Quiet. Bridge on the River Quiet. I don't believe so. What am I, oh, no. The African Queen is bogey. Afri- you have Maltese Falcon on yours. You've yeah. You've got African Queen. you got Casablanca. Uh, you have the Treasure of Sierra Madre. Yeah. Those are all Humphrey Bogart. Um, Who's in Bridge on the River Quiet then? Uh, isn't Alec Guinness in that somewhere? Alec Guinness is in Bridge on the River Quiet. For those uh, listening, if you don't know, Alec Guinness is the guy who played Obi-Wan Kenobi, among so many other things. All right, William Grapes of Holden. Wrath. William Holden. William Holden is the star of Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, let's see. Still haven't seen Annie Hall. Woody Allen's Annie Hall. Also on my list, Annie Hall. I've it's on Netflix right now. I keep almost clicking on it, and then I think of the recent scandally stuff that's come up, and I'm just like, I don't know if I want to watch it right now. I can't decide. It's making me sad. Dr. Zhivago. Rest in peace. Omar Sharif, we just lost him. Dr. Javago is on this list, and it's in that bucket. We might draw it tonight. Another, I don't know. Another uh, Omar Sharif film that you have not seen, Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia is one, on my one list. One of my favorite films. Uh, David Lean. That's we, we referenced David Lean earlier. That's right. Uh, we're talking about North by Northwest and the whole left to right. Lawrence of Arabia utilizes that technique. We'll, we'll talk about that once we, we watch it. I love it. Duck Soup with the Marx Brothers. Yep. Haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. So my list goes on forever. We we have so a lot I'm of stop there. We have a lot of movies. Okay, so we are going to wrap it up, but we're going to do so by um, picking the next two movies. So this gives you an opportunity to watch them before um, our next podcast, which will come out in about two weeks. Right. Take out a pen and paper, or open your notes app in your smartphone, and get ready to write down these two titles. All right, Steve, you can draw the first one. Wes is demanding that I draw the first I'm one. A, you're always going to be our first one. I'm always going to just have you draw the first one. Because you're my special guy. The movie selected in this random drawing from the Muppet Bucket for us to watch and report on on our next episode is The Maltese Falcon. What a coincidence. I've been meaning to watch this movie pretty much all my life, and I just keep not. And now it's assignment number two. How mind-blowing will it be if I draw another bogey movie? That would be mind-blowing indeed. (laughs) <laughs> what is it? I have. The, I'm having the same reaction that I had for Sophie's Choice. Um, Dune. No movie oh. number two. No, but I'll probably have the same reaction then too. Movie number two is Sunset Boulevard. Okay. So all right. Not super stoked about it. The problem is, if all the movies were like these, it's interesting. Old movies. We've been getting a lot of old ones. Yeah. Um, there are newer movies in this bucket. Um, it, it's. It's interesting because if we were drawing the newer ones, I think I wouldn't feel that way. Yeah. But because it's like, there's, I know there's exciting stuff in there that I want. So we also, in addition to making um, these lists of movies we haven't seen, we also made lists of some of our favorite films yeah. that the other person hasn't seen. So I have a bunch of movies that I really want Steve to watch, but Indeed. Um, we have not drawn one yet. So, um, so when I pull Sunset Boulevard, and it's one that I've delayed for various reasons watching, yeah. mostly because I'm just like kind of not interested. It's a little like, uh, I want something else. But and see, I hear from so many people whose opinions I respect that this movie is so great. All right. And yet I still have not been. I've started it. 
but I've still not been able to just fully dive in, and well, I don't know why. Sophie's choice was good, so I'm I'm gonna have faith in the system. Exactly. I'm gonna have faith in the bucket. In Maybe this, that's our show. In this bucket here. Faith in the bucket. That sounds. How about just the bucket? You think it sounds too cultish? That's too you? vague. Faith in faith the bucket, in the like bucket a, a sounds like a sequel to. Uh, no, I don't know what I'm, I was about to reference the old, the uh, early '90s sitcom Grace Under Fire, but that's Grace. That's not Faith. Yeah, okay. Anyway, this is what I think we should do. We should plug our twitters right now, and people could and tell listeners to suggest titles for this show for next week. Okay. So tweet at me, Steve, in No Ho Wood. That's an abbreviation for North Hollywood. Steve, in No Ho Wood, and tweet at Wes. I am at Movie Hippo. Movie like what we watch. Yep. Hippo, Hippo. like the wonderful animal. All one word. Yeah, glorious animal. All one word. You could also tweet at No Lag Gamers. No Lag Gamers. Yeah. Um, let us know what we should name our show. Yes, and try to tweet at both of us so that we each get notified about these tweets and we can be excited as we go on and get ready for our next episode. In the meantime, we're going to call it, uh, it'll be the No Lag Podcast Untitled Movie Project. Nice. And that'll only last for, I'm thinking, one episode. Uh, we'll see if we get some some yeah. suggestions from people. I hope we do. Um, and also, if you know if you want to tweet us some photos of you watching Whoa. Uh, Sophie's keep, Choice. Keep them... I want to see... Keep them clean. I want to see photos of people watching Sophie's Choice. Me too. Possibly with tissues in their hand. Like that they're, could like they're crying. go way wrong. Okay, people crying. There's no nudity in Sophie's Choice. No, there's not. And the sex that scene doesn't isn't really a sex scene. They don't actually have sex. Gross, weird creeps. Yeah, that's might. true. I want to see pictures <laughs> of people like bawling their eyes out during Sophie's Choice. Or bawling their eyes out during North by Northwest, which yes. probably should not happen. But cool. Probably won't cry. But, you know, if you want to send this photo of it anyways. That'd be, that'd be absolutely fun. Cool. Steve in NoHo Wood. Movie Hippo. And No Lag Gamers. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. Ooh. And watch The Maltese Falcon and... Sunset Boulevard. Before our next episode. In about two weeks. Thanks again, guys. Bon Cinema. Bon Cinema. I like it. <laughs>